Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Coke, and I'm also the host for the Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at the Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. The Cashflow Show, coming to you from the city of London. Real people, real business, real talk. Hello and welcome to the Cashflow Show. There are not as many confusing areas of business as that of insurance, but today we will have that demystified for us by Jason Cobine, co-founder of Cobine Carmelson Limited, insurance that does what you want it to. Welcome, Jason. Really pleased to have you here. My pleasure. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Welcome. You're most welcome. You see, I've got the pleasure of knowing you for many, many years now. But really, can you sum up to our listeners what you do and the services you provide at Cobine Carmelson? Sure. So what we do, I'll postpone for a minute. What our customers get is a good night's sleep. And I'm a firm believer in your, what you do for your customers is what they have when you might not be in the room. So they come to us with challenges about risks in their business. Often they say, I've already got insurance yet. I'm not sure what it does. Uh, Some of them even tell us that they've had a a small claim with you. So they they wonder what might happen to them if they had a big one. And the common name for what we do is insurance broking. But you know me, I don't like to be pigeonholed, Clayton. (laughs) No, not at all. No, that's not you. So yeah, what we're doing is trying to make sure that clients get what they need from their insurance um, rather than what insurance providers um, often put in packages. Most businesses are not packaged, so a lot of them need bespoke advice. So we try and make sure that they get the bespoke advice. So if they have a problem, they get exactly what they need. And sometimes what they need isn't money. With the data risks these days, sometimes what people need when things are going wrong are uh, expertise and people can jump in and solve a problem. Real people real business, real talk. And what we're going to do is we're going to move on to your beginnings, really. I mean, insurance is a complex and wide covering area. How did you start in the industry? By accident. So I was was 17 and I was at the crossroads in life that some of us get to a little bit later, but I'd already left home at 16. So in order to pay for my accommodation, I needed work. So I was looking for something long-term and I went into a place called a job centre. And uh, I remember those. I think you remember those, not many people do. Um, and they used to have lots of opportunities um, listed on the wall, a bit like a notice board. And the only one I saw that had career on it was at an insurance broker. So I took the, the advertisement down, um, the lady arranged an interview for me, I think I was interviewed on the Friday and I started on the Monday. Um, but I haven't really looked back because I found that it's a people business. So you meet or speak to different people every day. And I really like that. And they bring you different problems. And I like solving problems. Um, and I like 
thinking about things and trying to work out what solutions um, are available. So often people think in, if you're in the insurance industry, the, the solution is to provide insurance. But a lot of the time, the solution is to provide advice about how to reduce the risk so that claims don't happen in the first place. And that's something I really enjoyed doing. When did you realise that insurance was a career for you, but necessarily working as an employee wasn't necessarily going to be the path that you would take? When did that occur? Interesting. It's a very good question. And I hope the answer isn't too long-winded. No, because at the no. At, at the beginning, I was a pure employee. Um, even my Twitter handle says London's last T-boy, <laughs> because I believe I was. Um, I, I actually, when I first got the role, they said, you'll be making the tea. And that was true. And then I graduated. I learned to um, open the post and then started to deliver posts. And then slowly but surely, I started to understand the business from the ground up. And it is all about people, which is why making the tea wasn't the worst introduction because it allowed me to get to know everybody, get to know whether they were demanding, get to know whether they didn't mind if they had sugar or not, or if you forgot to put the sugar in, they'd say no problem. Where other people, if you forgot to put the sugar in, there was a big problem. So you started to learn about the different personalities. So it was a good grounding. Uh, so I was employed for three years and then we set up a partnership. I was very lucky at quite a young age I was invited to be a director and I grabbed that opportunity with both hands because it seemed too good to be true at the time. I was 20. Um, so I didn't feel I was employed at that stage. I felt I had more choice and we were working out which direction the business was going to go together. Um, and then 10 years later, I realised I'd been commuting because that position was out in uh, Reading and I was still living in London and commuting. It was easier than most commutes because I was going against the traffic. But after 10 years, I felt I'd done enough of that and I wanted to work in London. Now, having been a director and making decisions and having some choice in the way things go, it was a bit of a challenge then going back into employment because I worked in sales forces, not sales force, but in insurance sales departments in London. Right. Um, and therefore, I was having to toe the line. And it was during that period, I think it was a six-year period, I realized that the challenge wasn't necessarily the company I worked for. It was the leadership. So if a good leader left and a bad leader took over, things changed. And people got miserable and upset and were no longer engaged. And that's when I started understanding more about the culture of the business. So a culture of a business can um, be pointed in one direction, but the wrong person who's taken who's taken on board, and a lot of the time they try and manage people or boss their ground, and they're often called bosses or managers. So they're not leading, they're managing and bossing, and they don't realize that that doesn't help the employees to engage. And so I left. And I realized I was probably unemployable at that stage because I'd had a run of a couple of managers who um, were bosses and managing. And a lot of them were micromanaging. And I realized that that was probably a way to work in some places, but it certainly didn't work. It produced very poor results in departments I was working. So realizing that I'd had challenges with the last two um, people who were placed above me, I thought, well... Um, the last two companies I've worked for have been acquired. 
And if I moved to another one, they could possibly be acquired again by the same company. So I might as well do it myself. Um, and whilst that was scary, it was also uh, very exciting at the same time. So, um, yeah, mixed emotions, but obviously you look back and you're very glad that you did it. So you've decided now to break away and not sort of get yourself into a situation where you are ultimately moving from um, role to role and then finding out you're being taken over by the same person each time. What were your biggest hurdles going independent? Oh, okay. So whilst I already had relationships with clients from the business where I was a director, I was still involved in that business. So unlike most salespeople, I didn't want to take my clients with me. Uh, also, the business I've been with in the, in the few years since then, um, I was under quite strict covenants. Um, and one of the companies I'd worked for was an American company. And they had a really interesting practice. So when I told them I was thinking of leaving, they gave me four copies of a particular letter. They said, one's for you and one's for you to bring to each interview. And it was a really harsh letter from definitely Americanized. And it was basically saying, if you take this person on, the covenant goes to you as well as them. So, so could you, I'm going to stop you there, if I may. Could you explain so, to people who probably don't understand what a covenant is? So the, the proper description, if I'm going to use the proper description, is restricted covenant. And it basically means that you cannot take um, business or clientele with you to your new role. And it basically says that you will be um, sued if you do and legal action will definitely be taken not only just against you as an individual but against your previous employer now there are some people in the legal world that will tell you that restrictive covenants cannot be enforced or can't be enforced or they're difficult to enforce because in theory you're restraining someone from the only trade they are trained to undertake however it didn't seem worth a fight to me um, it didn't seem worthwhile trying to um, test whether they were going to come after me or not because as a young business, the last thing I wanted was any form of legal issues. Now, it's not because I'm frightened or worried or feel you know, that I should kowtow to bullies. It's just because I know they're stressful and they take up time. And the one thing I needed whilst I set up a new business was time. You need a lot of time. Um, you need to spend it wisely, and I didn't want to um, spend it on dealing with something that I could avoid. So the hardest thing was getting new clients, without a doubt. And there are some reasons behind that. So one of my uh, good friends who is an accountant explained to me that most people who are conservative won't work with a new business until it's a couple of years old, because most businesses fail in the first couple of years. So they want to see that you're going to survive before they start building a relationship with you because they've had bad experiences in the past where they've signed up to a new business and that business hasn't survived and then they had to redo the relationship building again. So there are lots of sort of hidden things in the business world that you might not necessarily know about that you certainly find out as soon as you go out on your own. And that was one of them, the fact that some people don't like or won't tie themselves to a new business. So that's a challenge. And um, 
it's an existing client challenge. Finding clients is still one of the hardest things yet. Um, we've learned an awful lot in 13 years that we've been established. And we're not saying that we, we've got it, got it down pat, but we certainly know how to find clients. That's for sure. So insurance, the question I would ask is, are people scared of insurance or do they just not understand cool. it? Okay, so maybe, so a bit of both, a bit of both, but then you've got to say to yourself, well, let's take the first bit, why are they scared? Well, they're scared because there are lots of people out there saying insurance companies don't pay out. So one of the people that say that loudest are actually insurance companies. It is, years ago I wrote a, a blog saying what is, you know, the, the, the biggest secret, the little secret in insurance and it's that insurers spread the myth that they don't pay out so that many people go to make a claim and the insurer knocks them back. They, they, they just feel the myth is real. So they think, I've heard that they don't pay out. And then they don't push the insurer. They don't challenge the insurer. Um, the insurer is probably using the bit that makes it complicated, which is jargon in their contracts. So if people don't understand the contract, they would normally go to a lawyer and have them interpret it. The beauty about an insurance contract is you don't necessarily need a lawyer to interpret it. A broker can help you do that because they're well-versed with them. Whilst they may not be qualified to um, tell you you know, the law, they're certainly experienced enough to tell you what the clauses in insurance contracts mean. So I'd say a bit of fear. People don't want to make claims because they've heard that they don't pay out. Sometimes when they're called claims departments, the questions they're asked make them feel awkward, make them feel bad. Some people have told me they felt like they were being treated like a criminal. Um, and that's that's just terrible um, questioning and a terrible um, question set that, that should never be used, but it's, it clearly is. Um, but then the complicated part is if people don't understand the contract, then they're not necessarily making a good decision. So we come from the standpoint that we know people don't need their insurance contracts. So we help them understand them before they make a decision to buy them. And that's quite unusual. Um, we have our own ways of doing that. Of that's course. our intellectual property. Yet we find when people understand, they make better decisions. Yet they're not given all the details, then they can't do that. And I wanted to ask how like important... It is full disclosure in a business insurance context? Um, yeah, it's ultimately important. Ultimately important. But I'm going to show my age now as well <laughs> before I get to the main point. So most people's first experience of insurance is car insurance. It's the first real thing that they need to insure. And this will resonate with a lot of people out there. And you might not be the first people to have said it. But imagine this. The first experience of insurance is car insurance. And it's horrific for the buyer. It's hugely expensive. It's normally more than the value of the car. Okay? And that's per year. And people don't understand it. And they can't understand because they're saying, well, I'm buying this thing to protect something worth £500 and it's costing me 1500 And that's because... As, as most people who have never had an accident, we all imagine that they're the best drivers in the world. No one wants to admit that they could be better at driving, and that's why you have so much road rage, as well as 
the problems with the, you know, the fact you might lose your no-claim bonus. So they're buying a car for £500. They've been forced to buy this thing that they, they don't think they need because young people aren't going to imagine they're going to have accidents. Otherwise, they've been getting the car in the first place. So they can't imagine that they're going to cause an injury, which is why car insurance is so expensive. And it's not explained to them that the reason this premium is so high is because the last batch of 18-year-olds actually had accidents. And now you're paying the premiums based on the accidents that happened last year. So it's, it's ultimately unfair. But how can you work out premiums based on the current crop if you're not measuring their driving? Telematics might change that, but there's, not everyone is getting telematics in their vehicle. So it's a duress purchase. And then they find that the premium keeps going up. They earn this thing called a no-claim bonus, and yet it doesn't make a difference. They've got a 30% no-claim bonus because they've been claim-free for a year, but the premium's still going up, so it doesn't make any sense to them. So the next thing is, if they do have an incident or an accident, they lose their bonus. And sometimes if they tell their insurance company that someone banged into them, that there's no damage, it sits on their record. And then they're penalised for telling the truth to their insurer halfway through the year. Coming from Entrepreneur, they said, you had a small bump. We know there are no costs, but now we're considering if you've got an accident on your record, you won't get a no-claim bonus for your costs are even higher. So it's a real duress purchase, and that stays with them. So then until they purchase an insurance from someone who enlightens them as to why it's so expensive or why their car insurance was so expensive and what the value is, in them purchasing their home insurance or the first insurance for their business or maybe the fifth policy that their business has required until someone explains exactly what they're getting. They will always see insurance as a generic heading as expensive. And no, if people don't explain what they're going to get from it, then they will never know. So it's always a dress purchase until they understand exactly what they're getting. And a lot of the time, that doesn't happen until they make a claim. So imagine they call their claims department and they get treated like a criminal. Just continues the perpetuated myth that insurers don't pay out, and it gives it makes people feel uncomfortable. So it's not surprising at all, Clayton. During the pandemic, insurance was under the spotlight quite a bit, especially in relation to the claim that a number of businesses made regarding the business interruption insurance scheme. Can you say what yep. you think your take on all of that was? Sure. Well, many businesses buy business interruption cover. So if it wasn't explained to them that it didn't cover pandemics or it didn't cover illnesses, then of course they would expect some payment for such a national and international, in fact, global problem. So the challenge is maybe they didn't have the products explained to them very well in the first place. So they assumed and it's right for them to assume, because if it says on the cover of an insurance policy, comprehensive, or if you open the pages and you see a section that says all risk, then those two phrases mean things to people. If you've got something that's comprehensive, why would you read all 80 pages of it? Yeah, the challenge is, these are buzzwords. These are dreamt up by marketing people. Uh. So there's no such thing as comprehensive insurance. There's no such thing as all risks. If you open the all risks section of the policy, there will be a page, if not two, if not more, of exclusions. And when you get to the second page of exclusions, it will then go on to say, now go to page 36. 
and read the general conditions that apply to this and the rest of the policy. But people haven't done that because the full sense of security that the words all risks or comprehensive gives them is compelling. Also, it's useful because if they see it says all risks or comprehensive, they won't open it because they've got clients they want to speak to, not documents that will bore them to tears. Yeah. And let's face it, most of us don't open the documents. As I said earlier, we understand that. So we talk to people about what the contents are. So a lot of people thought that they had insurance and they made a claim. Then the insurance industry did the thing that I mentioned quite early in this conversation. They spread the myth, we don't pay out. Um, there were insurers, uh, I won't name them, even though I'd love to, but went out publicly and say, we don't cover pandemics, and those insurers are making payments as you and I speak. <laughs> um, they, they managed to delay them, and they're still delaying them in some cases, and some of the um, excuses that they have come up with are totally <laughs> crazy, you know, absolutely crazy. But they're now, because they've said we don't pay for pandemics publicly, a lot of them are trying not to pay for pandemics, even though some insurers forgot to exclude pandemics, others forgot to exclude infectious diseases. So they're on the hook, and they are going to pay out. But unfortunately, most people had bought policies that did have exclusions, but they didn't know about those exclusions because it had never been explained to them. And most people, if a restaurateur sees a policy that says restaurant insurance, why wouldn't he buy that? It, of course. You know, it seems, yeah. The fact is, unfortunately for them, the restaurant insurance, if you took the cover off, it's the same one that's sold to a different policy, different type of business, which just has a different cover. Now, the regulator has belatedly said they're doing something about this, yet it's, it's going to take ages for that to, to actually be embedded. Um, and the way insurers are going about trying to be clearer about which sectors they are able to cover. Uh, they're not going about it a very good way. In, instead of saying, okay, these are the lines of business that we want to do. We want to work with restaurants. We want to work with designers. Or we want to work with football clubs. Or we want to work with lottery companies. Uh, they, they tend to be just saying, well, we're only working with this sector now. And then they stop helping all their other policyholders. We've had a number of people contact us in the last two months who have been told by their insurer that they have to find a new insurer and they've only got seven days till their policy expires. So whilst the insurance, well, the regulator is trying to do a good thing, it's trying to say stop selling things to the wrong people or stop selling things to sectors where you don't have expertise. And the insurance companies are going to need to reaction go, oh, quick, let's have a look at what we've got. We, we shouldn't have done that two years ago. Right, quick, tell them that we're not doing it anymore. So that's creating, yeah, that's creating issues. Of, so, so unfortunately, you know, it's crazy. Sometimes the insurers listen to the regulator and don't seem to be doing what they're saying. And then other times they do a knee-jerk reaction and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you think that particular court case that was launched by various businesses damaged the insurance oh, industry in the minds of the yeah. public? So you probably hear me sigh hugely. <laughs> Hugely, it was, you know, to be honest, I've, I've, some of the things I've seen from insurers uh, are, not, are nothing short of disgraceful. 
Um, and if they were on the front page of the newspapers, then people would understand um, exactly how badly it can be if you don't get the right contract of insurance for your business. So the delays that the uh, court hearing caused, it was, it was roughly 18 months, and it means that claims that should have been paid um, were put in abeyance for 18 months because the insurers were saying, well, we've got to wait to see the outcome of this court case. So some businesses would have folded because there was a court case. So overall, it's been an absolute disaster. And whilst I have a very healthy respect for our regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, um, it, it, unfortunately, the case seems to have played into insurers' hands. And uh, that isn't what I would call a fair outcome. So just to give an example, imagine that the course came, court case came up with five points of agreement. Um, some of the insurers, or they appoint loss adjusters to deal with claims, are, are arguing and, and sort of, how can I put it, um, misconstruing those five points. So you think, this was in the court case, this was agreed. How can you possibly be you know, doing the opposite? So it's, it hasn't produced the outcome that we would have liked. It has damaged the industry you know, immeasurably. It will take years to undo the damage. I'm not sure insurance will ever recover because there are a lot of people out there who now believe that no insurance is, is worth the paper it's written on. And that's not the case. You know, we see claims being paid every single day. We see businesses who had serious problems recover and go on to thrive. Yet those stories are not, not out in the public um, because there are too many other stories about insurance companies behaving badly. Insurance companies, and in particular, Cobine Carmelson. I mean, you've been going for a few years now. What do you see the future for your business within the industry? Um, well, our biggest challenge is recruitment. Two reasons. It's, it's always interesting to find the right people, but we want to encourage the right people to, to stay with us a long time. So recruiting the right people and then keeping them is always the biggest challenge, I feel. Um, um, so that will always be our challenge going forward, finding the right people. We're always looking for good people. Um, insurance companies are out on their own. Um, brokers like ourselves provide a bit of a buffer for businesses who need insurance but want some service to go with it rather than just a set of documents. So there'll always be a need for insurance companies, there'll always be a need for us and, and brokers like us. Yet the future is about trying to repair relationships, trying to change the culture of the insurance industry so that it's seen as a service provider, not a service denier. It's seen to uh, provide good outcomes because we don't see enough publicity about the good outcomes. We post them on our website as often as we can. But we're one website in you know one of thousands, and the press aren't interested in businesses who have had some serious problems and received you know six hundred thousand pounds to settle their claim. They're more interested in the businesses that haven't received the two million pounds that they needed to survive. They're, they're more they're more newsworthy. So the challenge, the real challenge, is to help um, the industry help change the culture 
So for my part, I volunteer on two committees um, for the British Insurance Brokers Association. One is representing small and medium-sized insurance brokers in the UK, and the other is cyber security, because we see the big risk, um, apart from pandemics, to businesses, or rather the the biggest aggregated risk to business. And what I mean by that, the, the thing that can affect a lot of businesses at once is to be cyber security issues. So there are special committees trying to ensure that businesses understand that risk. We work with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport to try and put the message across. And we try and work with, uh, we lobby lots of different agencies, even the IT security industry, to help them understand that IT security and insurance should work hand in hand. Uh, we shouldn't be working against each other. You shouldn't buy IT security or insurance. You should do some IT security and then fill in the, the large gaps with insurance. So it's all about let's get the culture right. Let's help people understand that we, are, we can help and we do help uh, so that the reputation can, can improve and people can, can slowly start to forgive the industry. They never forget, but hopefully it will forgive. So what is your advice to a young person starting out saying, I've heard about this insurance thing. I don't want to be an influencer on YouTube. I want a career. What would your advice to them be? Well, good point. they could be an influencer on YouTube and still work in insurance. <laughs> true, So, true. you know, they could. They could. This is, this is the challenge, you see. That all these roles that young people want can be fulfilled in the insurance industry. Right. It's just, it's not, that's not a route that the door isn't held wide open for them. They're not encouraged to apply. And uh, some of the insurance you know, people are too conservative, so they don't see influencing on YouTube as valuable, even though it definitely is. Um, I would say to them, basically apply and ask to talk to people that um, work in the different departments. You should be interviewing the company as well as them interviewing you. So do a bit of research about them, look for their client testimonials, find out who they work with, see how happy their employees are, ask them if you want flexible working, ask them. You know, do they work flexibly? If they say yes, ask to speak to some employees that have that benefit, that have that so-called luxury. So I'd say interview the company as well as them interviewing you. And, and ask questions that, that will, will, will establish what your work-life balance will look like when you're under their wing. Because they should be looking after you. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it's not about taking people on, milking them for everything, and then they retire. It's about taking the right people on, helping them grow. They will provide great outcomes for the business, and everyone thrives. So I'd like to leave you with sort of a couple of questions. And the first one is, if you were to start your company again, what would you do differently? Oh, crikey. Um, that's a good question. Uh, breach the covenants? No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'd learn more about people. I, I, I've learned so much from reading books about people. So um, one of my business heroes is Warren Buffett um, and I understood he, he taught me something that was very valuable which was keep frugal so he, he doesn't spend a lot of money and that was a good thing for me to be to do when I started a business so you have to start with your cost base very low and that even means your personal cost base 
he was he was a good insight for me. So I'd say read books about business, sorry, about people rather than business. I'm not saying don't do any business books, but read books about people, successful people and what their trials and tribulations have been. What would I definitely do differently? I I don't know. Um I would probably value social media more at an earlier stage. Whilst I wasn't late, um, I didn't uh, understand it fully at the beginning. So we now understand that it allows us to have conversations, the sort of conversations that we're saying technology should enable. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the thing is with social media, I think everybody, it's relative to where you are in the scheme of things. I still think that there is a place where social media works really well. But I also think that there is a point at which social media, it is, social media should really have enabled the conversation, like you said previously. It should really allow everything to open up. But it seems to sort of, people will resort to social media as opposed to engaging with with each other as human beings and I think that's where to a certain extent social media hasn't necessarily fulfilled its promise that's what Mm -hmm. I think but I mean in the future that may well change but I think that I think a lot of people sort of use social media as a shield for not presenting their true selves or their real selves and sort of like yeah. treating it like, you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg wants to treat as uh, um, a metaverse, a parallel universe. This is my social media life. But deep down inside, I'm really unhappy. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sure, sure. But that, that, that's, that's why, it, you know, it's, it's a form of branding, isn't it? That's, so you, you usually suss that out at the first engagement. So, yeah. you know... As you said, use the example, people you know uh, seem very happy on social media, and then they're not so happy in real life. Um, and businesses can present one face on social media, and it seems all night. And then you pick up the phone, or send them an email, or send them an email, and you get cut off, or they don't email you back. Yeah, very so, true. You know, it, it, are they are they spending money in the right areas? Yes. Maybe they should spend less on social media and more on on getting their lines of communication or keeping their lines of communication open. Of course, that's one of our biggest bugbears um, because we prevent our clients from getting stuck in call centres because we, we you know, most insurance companies don't have. Um, what they use technology and call centers and put you in queues and stuff like that. So we use apps to get around that um, and push us up the list and get us called back. Yet they don't realize that when they say, for example, oh, we're busy, and you say, yes, you're always busy in March. Um, It happens every year. Um, They don't ever realize that maybe if they're always busy in March, they need more staff in March. <laughs> it would make sense. They might, even, they might not even need more staff. They might just need more people to answer the phone, which you can outsource. You know, they don't realise that their excuses are tired and old, and they don't make any sense. And that their competitors are using the same ex- excuses. Or maybe they feel, well, we're all using the same excuses. So that's fine. Um, no one's going to get a better service than any of my competitors. 
Well, just wait until one pops up and does, then you're done for. That's the thing that we find most challenging about you know tech and progress. It's not used in the right way. Interesting. So this is the future. And so what will be happening for Cobine Carmelson going forward? Obviously, we come to the end of 2021, which has gone in a rapid fashion. It's just hurtled along, you know. So sure. what, what will be happening for you, hopefully, in 2022? Uh, well, we're growing. So we're looking for new people because we're in so many inquiries. Like I mentioned, the the number of inquiries we're getting from people who are finding that their insurance company are culling them is on the increase, and we couldn't have predicted that. Um, we also got 25% more inquiries as soon as the pandemic started, and that may have been because we're quite flexible and we always work from home, and we were still answering the phone when maybe other people were having trouble migrating their their staff to, to the working from home or the flexible work environment. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to try and find more ways of working flexibly, but staying in touch. We want to um, grow more young people. Um, we, we work with uh, different organisations to try and encourage young people to, to, to develop themselves. And what I mean by that is to learn people skills and sell themselves a little bit better. Um, and, and hopefully we'll be recruiting um, more people who who don't necessarily want what I wanted, God knows how many years ago, but are looking for an opportunity where they get to do different things each day, they hear about different things each day, sometimes they hear about things that aren't even in the public domain because a lot of businesses will talk about insurance before they can get off the ground. Um, and, and be able to help people. Like I said at the beginning, we give people a good night's sleep. If helping support people, um, and let's face it, businesses are usually occupied by people. There are lots of people in the business. If you feel like you want to help people um, and you feel you want to understand people better and you want to um, help them when times are tough, then maybe insurance is an industry for you to get into. Okay. But it's also there for people who, who are highly driven. It's also doors are open for people who are highly creative and doors are also open for people who want to sit in the background and avoid the limelight because they managed to put in all the fantastic tech that keeps everything else working. So, yeah, we're looking forward to grow and giving people opportunities that, that, that helps them grow and us at the same time. Well, so if we've got other businesses that are basically looking to get that good night's sleep, which is incredibly important, how do they find yeah. you and how do they contact you at uh, Cobine Carmelson? Okay, so a good night's sleep is basically an opportunity for all. Um, we know lots of businesses who, who were fine when everything was going well, but the stress when, when they had a small problem that wasn't correctly dealt with, that's what, 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 what made them realise that I need better service. So if people are looking for a good service in the good times and when times are tough, then they can contact us on the phone, which is 0207-371-2812, or visit our website, which is Um Both of those are the best ways. If you go to the website, you can send us an email by going to the contact page. Um, and you'll also find me on Twitter. So my views are my own, not necessarily those of the company. Um, even though they're often intertwined, and you'll find me on LinkedIn as well. So look for Jason Cobine, C-O-B-I-N-E, 
on LinkedIn or Twitter, or on Instagram, it's Cobine Jason. Excellent stuff. And that's us. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jason, for joining us. We really, really appreciate that. We've come to the end of the Cashflow Show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom, and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk. Hey, Cashflow Crew, if you've ever wished that you could highlight episodes Kindle style and share specific moments, you can now do so using the Clever.fm app. In addition, you can filter episodes by tags, transcribe our episodes live, and click on links to things like books, articles, or definitions as you listen along. Download the app on iOS or Android by going to clever.fm and listen to the Cashflow Show for an enhanced experience. We'll see you there.